jump in. We're going to talk about covenant today. Before we do that, I want to read this out of Jeremiah 6. And this, uh, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it over us. This hit me this morning, and I, I just want to share this. Today's the five-year anniversary of the solar eclipse. Y'all remember that? Um, when the moon went dark in the middle of the day? So, yeah, five years to this day. So, anyway, I was thinking about that this morning. There's a lot of stuff that kind of swirls around that. Um, that was right before we started the church. Um, our, our, the name Dream originally came from Acts 2.17, which says... Um, the sun will be turned to dark, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Um, old men dream dreams, young men uh, see visions. And that happened. We started our church right after the moon literally was turned dark in the middle of the day. So it was just a lot of kind of cool stuff that happened around that. So I was thinking about that, kind of reflecting on it this morning. And the Lord brought me to this in Jeremiah 6. I just want to read this over you. This is what the Lord says. Jeremiah 6, starting at verse 16. This is not my message today. I just want to open up with this. He says this, stand at the crossroads and look. Now I'm getting this image of the Robert Frost, two roads diverged in a wood. I took the one less traveled by. So that's kind of what I'm picturing when I read this. But stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. And then he says this to Israel. But you said... We will not walk in it. I appointed watchmen over you and said, Listen to the sound of the trumpet, but you said, We will not listen. Therefore, hear, you nations, you who are witnesses, observe what will happen to them. Hear, you earth, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their schemes. Okay? That's, I'm bringing disaster on this people, which is the fruit of their schemes. Okay? Not because I'm mad, but because I'm going to let their trees begin to bear fruit. Because they have not listened to my words and have rejected my law. What do I care about incense from Sheba, which would have been a really high quality incense, which they would have offered probably to the Lord. So what do I care about your high quality incense or your sweet calamus from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will put obstacles before this people. Parents and children alike will stumble over them. Neighbors and friends will perish. But the, the whole passage starts out like this. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient past. Ask where the good way is. Walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. If they're not finding rest for their souls, it's because the rest of the passage, they have chosen a path that is not the ancient path. And it connects with Jesus when he says later on, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the light. And then he also says, I am a stumbling block, which is exactly what I just read. I will put an obstacle before this people. Parents and children alike will stumble over them. Neighbors and friends will perish. I believe the obstacle that Jeremiah is talking about right here from the Lord is Jesus, who is the rock that is the stumbling stone, and also those connected with the stumbling stone, which is you and I, which becomes a stumbling stone for those that refuse to choose the ancient path. Right? So where the Lord has had us for five years, and I want to encourage you with this because I, I was thinking about this. I, talk, I met with a pastor this week, and we were just talking about this. And um, in, in this area of the country, 
Um, the church is typically defined by uh, gossip. You know, man, I can't stand the way they do this. Can you believe what the pastor said about this? Can you believe what that person said about me here? Can you believe what they wore on Sunday? Can you, you know what I mean? Can you believe what they're doing on Saturday night? And then they're showing up at church. That, that's, that's what this, the church is defined by. We were, we were at dinner last night, me and Jordan Veda, and uh, sitting beside a, um, a couple of ladies that were well into their 80s. And the whole time we were sitting there, all they were talking about was how awful their friends are. You know what I'm saying? And I told, and I, I told Jordan, I said, I, can, I guarantee you, I can take you to the church they go to right now. But, um, you know, no, does that, Lord forgive me for that. But, I mean, it's just real. But that, you know what I'm saying? But that's kind of, that's what defines us. And the Lord is saying, like, if you haven't been awake over the past couple of years, the Lord is saying, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient path. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But... But if you refuse, then I'm going to give you the fruit of your choice, which is disaster. Why? Why? Does that mean the Lord's not good? Does that mean the Lord's angry? Does that mean the Lord's wrathful? No, it means the Lord will do whatever it takes for you to realize that there is one path that is good for you, and it is ultimately called Jesus. So if we're walking down a path that is not called the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through it, he will allow us to go as deep into disaster as we need to go in order to realize, wait a minute, this is not the way. And, you know, and just like I told last week, that is the goodness of God. However, the Lord in goodness in a city like this, in an area like this, in a state of the church like this, he will plant watchmen, and this is going to sound very prideful, take it as you must, like this church, he will plant watchmen right in the middle that is calling out to the culture, specifically the religious culture, to choose the ancient path. You know? And so if you and I ever get to the point where we look around and we say, man, for example, um, man, that, why, there should be more people that are into this stuff. That's what I say all the time. I've spent since March all the way to here, which is what, six months now? Um, five months? Yeah, five months. I've spent the past five months asking the Lord why on earth he gave me a message that he has given me. Because it ain't fun sometimes to be the one that's calling out to things that nobody else cares about, except you guys. But you know what I'm saying? And, and over and over I realized, and I, I, I shared this with Isaiah and a few other people this morning, over and over I realized that the reason the Lord does that is, A, he will redeem his people at whatever cost. Jesus is proof of that. No matter the cost, redemption is on the mind of the Lord. Therefore, he's willing to wait as long as it takes for a group of people to say, no matter how anti-culture it looks, we will be the redemption for the culture, which is first and foremost uh, determined by the purity that a group of people walks in. So you and I, for the past five years, or the, however long you've been here, we have been so laser-focused on the purity of the church that it hasn't looked explosive yet. But there's coming a day when redemption is going to come straight through Zion. And when it does, you and I will be on the forefront of history in the church shifting. Let me, okay. Every 500 years in the church, and I'll get to my message. It's shorter today, so I got time. Every 500 years in the church, there is a major shift. I don't know why that the Lord chooses this timing, but he does. So in the first, it was Jesus. Jesus was born, B.C. to 80 shifts, 
He dies, rises again, major shift. Okay, 500 years later is when we get all the, um, all the councils that come together and make the determination that the church is going to believe in the Trinity. The church is going to believe that Jesus is actually the Son of God. And so all that's solidified, and then there's a shift. Okay, And then at year 1,000-ish, about the 1,000, kind of turn of the century. Um, is that century or millennium? Millennium. 1,000 years, millennium. Yes. At the turn of the millennium, uh, the Eastern Church and the Western Church splits, which the Western Church has suffered greatly from, you know? And so the Eastern Church goes here, the Western Church goes here, and they follow Augustine into the pits. And so we go like this. At 1500 A.D., 500 years later, is the Reformation. So that's when Martin Luther writes the 99 Theses and nails them to the door in Wittenberg, the Catholic Church door, and essentially says salvation doesn't come through you paying cash. Salvation comes through faith alone. And so he makes that shift. And then here we are at year 2000, 23, 22, almost 23, right? And right now the Lord is shifting the church. If you can't see it, it's happening. Because people are leaving the church in droves, but they're not leaving the faith. They're leaving the faith that they grew up in trying to find the faith. And I'm telling you, if we're not careful, we'll allow them to keep going into oblivion instead of stepping in and saying, we have actually found the way that is the answer not only to all your questions, but the answer to everything on the inside of you that you haven't even thought to ask yet. And, and that is the shift that's taking place. But here's the thing I want you to know. In the year 500, when that shift happened, it came on the heels of men like St. Athanasius, who I talk about all the time. Okay, Athanasius spent his entire life running from persecution. Five times, at least, it's recorded that he was ran out of cities. Five times. And he died with people still believing he was insane. But when he died, the church and the councils picked up his teaching and said, wait a minute, maybe this guy actually knew what he was talking about. And the church shifts, okay? You get the east-west split in 1,000. In 1500, Martin Luther, when he nails the 90, he was not a popular guy. The Catholic church was the church. So it wasn't like he nails those 99 theses and then there's 3,000 people mega church ready to embrace Reformation. No, it was him and a few other people before him that led up to this Reformation and he gets persecuted and he loses, ultimately loses his mind by the end of his life. So, you know, but um, by the end of his life, he goes insane. And I would too if I spent my entire life running from the Catholic church, you know? But, but that's his entire life and he dies and suddenly the church says, wait a minute, maybe Paul was right. Maybe salvation is through faith alone. Maybe you don't have to pay cash, you know? But he's dead. And so the constant theme you see in the church is that every single major shift happens when a group of people says, even if I never lay eyes on it, I will still be the seed that's planted in the ground. And so what we as a church have to have is what I've been calling prophetic eyes. And that means that you are here and you're a part of what the Lord is doing, not just here, but even in your secret place, even at your work, everywhere the Lord has you, you're a, at your school, you're a part of what the Lord is doing because you see a day on the horizon. It could be a hundred years, it could be a thousand years, it could be five years. 
but you see a day on the horizon when every son and daughter of God is coming home. And because you have prophetic vision, you're living every single day, even if you don't see it right now, with, what's li- with what lies ahead on your mind, not what's right in front of you on your mind. Because if what's right in front of you is on your mind, then guess what? We should close the doors. Look around. You know what I'm saying? Look around. But if 150 years is on your mind, we're right where we need to be. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? And so what I want to encourage you with is that we need to start making these decisions to choose the ancient paths. And when you take that road, suddenly worship's going to look different. If you haven't noticed, prayer will we'll actually pray. You know, like, who, who does that anymore? But worship's going to look different. Prayer will look different. Teaching will look different, right? Because I'm not here to teach you how to, how to be, you know, how to find your, uh, what's it called, assignment. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, I, don't, I don't care. I don't care about your, well, all right, let me be careful. I care about your assignment. I just don't think your assignment is what you think your assignment is. You know what I'm saying? But I, I don't, I don't want to sit here and reinforce all of your uh, ideas that you watched on TikTok. You know what I'm saying? Lord, I, like most, most of the people today that know anything about the Bible know it because of somebody who's on TikTok that, A, don't know the Bible. So, you know, so I'm, but I'm here to lay a foundation on the inside of you. And Matt's here, and Isaiah's here, and Evan and Jenna are here. That's our staff now. And everybody else, we're here to lay a foundation in your life and in the earth that chooses the ancient path. And if we were on the ancient path, we wouldn't need to make a choice that looks so counterculture. But the fact that what we do looks so different than what the culture does, even though what we do is absolutely orthodox to the early church, tells you there's a path that has not been chosen for a long time. But two roads diverged in a wood, and we choose the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Okay, so that's free. It's not a message today, but you can have that and uh, pay your tithes at the door. Just kidding. It's free. So you and I generally know, this is the message, you and I generally know that we are in a covenant with God. Everybody, you've heard that before. We use that language. Uh, We also have a general idea of what covenant is. The question is, that I want to ask you today, why would God engage us through covenant? Why would God choose covenant to make our relationship known? God specifically chose covenant to make His purposes known But why? I contend this is another part of context that you and I really need to understand in Scripture. So the Old Testament and the New Testament, as we know them, are actually the Greek words diathike, diathike, which is a translation of the Hebrew word berif, both meaning covenant. So the Old Testament and the New Testament is actually the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in your Bible. That's, That's the Greek wording. That's a translation of the Hebrew word, which both mean covenant. So to put it in layman's terms, the entire story of redemption and the Bible are stated from a 10,000-foot view as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which would make covenant extremely important, right? So let's look at some historical context. So I'm going to give you some history. Stay awake. I promise it's going to be good. 
Let's look at some historical context to covenant and see if we can't find some clues as to why God used this commonly known idea to communicate his purpose. So, um, so let, me, let me quote you from a, a professor named Sandra Richter. And uh, let me just quote this, and, um, or, or this is more of a summary of her quote that I wrote out, but this is what she said. A bereath in Hebrew, a covenant, is an agreement enacted between two parties in which one or both make promises under oath to perform or refrain from certain actions stipulated in advance. So one more time, that's a big, that's a big definition. A covenant, in Scripture, a covenant, is an agreement enacted between two parties in which one or both makes promises under an oath to perform or refrain from certain actions stipulated in advance in this covenant. This is what John Levinson says, who wrote Sinai and Zion, it's a book, an entry into the Jewish Bible. This is what he said. He said, The literary legacy of ancient Israel is incomprehensible apart from covenant theology. Okay? So every single thing we need to know about Israel, we have to find through an idea of what their covenant is. Okay, So there are five main interactions in the Old Testament that involve covenant. And, um, and I'm just going to list these to you so you can kind of pop them in your mind as I'm reading them. Five main interactions involving covenant. There's Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay, There is Noah... After the flood, there is Abraham and God's covenant with him and his descendants. There's Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. That's the most well-known one. And then finally, there is David and his kingly legacy. I will give you a king of your legacy forever. So those are the five main covenants in Scripture. Remember the message two weeks ago about family and how Israel was a patriarchal, family-centered society. Do you remember that? Some of y'all weren't here, and that's okay. You can go back and listen to it. But I taught the whole message. It was on a Friday night a couple of weeks ago. The whole message was about how Israel was a patriarchal society. And so everything in Israel and the near ancient East, everything operated through family. Our culture operates on an individual basis with some family sprinkled in, Right? So if you and your family have a falling out, you can have the same life as you would have if you and your family were connected. You know what I mean? In the ancient Near East, Israel, if you and your family have a falling out, you're homeless and on the brink of death because everything in your life flows through family, particularly the patriarch, which would have been the oldest male uh, living in the family. So, so with that in mind, let me ask you this. What would be the primary purpose of covenant between two different parties? If family is the only way that resources and provision and work and anything else come together and flow, if that's the only way it happens, then what would be the purpose of a covenant? In the ancient Near East, the ideological foundation for a covenant 
was what scholars call a fictive kinship. Let me write this down. I'm going to give you some scholarly stuff, but then I'm going to break it down so you're not going to have to do that the whole time. I love that, but <clears throat> fictive kinship. Can y'all see this? Okay. So in the ancient Near East, the ideological, the foundation for a covenant was what scholars call a fictive kinship. Fictive sounds like the word what? Fiction. Kinship is family. Okay? So we might even say a fictional or a, or a, a, a fictional, excuse me, family. Right? So a family that isn't actually a family but operates as a family. So remember, everything flowed through family. So how would two parties who aren't family establish a relationship of privilege and responsibility with someone not in the family? They would join each other's family. That's what effective kinship was. It was the act of making non-kin kin. Kind of like a marriage. Yes, so, so the, I, the... That's my next note. Thank you, Angela. So the closest thing we have to understanding this today is, is marriage and adoption. Okay? Uh, in a marriage, you take two families and you join them in covenant together and they begin to operate as one. Okay? Same with adoption. You take a kid that isn't your, your natural kid and through covenant you bring them in and you treat them as if they are your blood kid. Right? <clears throat> So the idea of a covenant was to establish the relational means by which two parties would operate as one family. By which two parties would operate as one family. We have many examples of ancient covenants that are structured just like the Bible's covenants. So this is kind of like apologetic stuff. Apologetics is kind of proving what you believe. There, there are many historical documents, not Christian documents in, in the ancient Near East that um, prove to us that covenant is how this culture came together and operated. Okay? Not only that, the ones that we have show us, um, A, when this Torah, when the Torah was probably written, which is really cool, but two, it shows us the, uh, the, the mindset of those that God was entering into covenant with. Okay, so here is how an ancient covenant, not just scriptural, all the historical ancient covenants, this is how they were structured. Okay, so first, and I promise, I know this is a lot, but I got to lay the groundwork to get to where I'm going, okay? So y'all still with me? Y'all super tired today, aren't you? <laughs> okay, so you got first the preamble, okay? In the preamble, a king, or in this case Yahweh, would put their name, they would put their title, and they would put all of their grandeur, okay? So they would say, I am king so-and-so, the lord of this, the leader of this, the so-and-so of this, and I accomplished this, I took over this territory, and I built this fortress. And that would be the, the intro, that would be the preamble, okay? So you'd have the preamble, number one. Number two, you had the what's called the historical prologue. In this section, it provided the reason a lesser side should participate in a covenant with a greater side and accept the leadership of the great king, for example. Here's what's interesting. This portion of covenant 
is only found in second millennium documents, particularly in Hittite treaties. That means nothing to most of you. That's okay. This part right here, historical prologue, is only historically found in documents around between 2000 and 1000 BC. Outside of that, we have documents such as Assyrian, um, which are older covenants. And Assyrian covenants excluded this part because Assyria was huge. If you remember this, Assyria was the ones that took Israel, the northern kingdom, into exile. Okay, They were huge. And so instead of saying, hey, this is why you should join into covenant with us. We'll bless you with this. We'll help you with this. We'll make your economy do this, whatever. Instead, the Assyrian covenants would say, I am king so-and-so. I've done this. If you don't get in covenant with us, we'll destroy your land. I mean, literally, that's what it would say. We'll, and li- some of them literally would say, we'll bring our wrath against you if you don't join covenant with us. Now, you ready for this? I'm about to show you this. The biblical covenant has this in it. Why is that huge? To, to have the historical prologue is what scholars would call the section of grace. They would say, because remember, a covenant was important because it would take a smaller country, for example, and a very, very large country, and they would come together. Why would that be so important for the smaller country? Let's say Israel joins into covenant with a larger group of people. And an enemy comes against Israel who is small, but they've been in covenant with this country who is large. Now, when an enemy comes against them, they're not just coming against Israel, they're coming against this large country too. So, you see, so there would be a lot of benefits for a smaller country coming into agreement or covenant with a bigger one, right? The historical prologue would be the bigger one going to the smaller one saying, this is why you should be in covenant with us. We did this with your fathers. Your fathers treated us well and we treated them well. We blessed you with grain when you didn't have any grain. When that group of people came against you, we came and fought on your behalf. So you guys should be in covenant with us. Okay? Rather than what Assyria said, which is, If you don't get in covenant with us, wrath is coming. Most of us have viewed Yahweh in an Assyrian covenant when he's actually found in a Hittite covenant. Most of us have seen Yahweh as a God that says, If you don't do this, I'll kill you. No, Yahweh is a God that says, I've done this for you, now you should come join me in it. Very different. That's what a historical prologue is. <clears throat> this also helps us date the, uh, the Exodus, Deuteronomy, the covenants and that. I won't get into that today. Uh, number three was the stipulations. Stipulations would be blessings for keeping the covenant and curses for not keeping the covenant. Typically, it would call on the foreign gods to enact those. Okay, I'm almost done, then we'll get to the fun stuff. Number four, there'd be witnesses. So in ancient you know, covenants, they would call on their false gods that would come in and be witnesses of the covenant to make sure that that group followed it and this group followed it. Okay? And then number five, there would be a deposit, which would they would take the covenant and they would place it in their foreign gods' temples. 
And then the last part would be a provision for periodic reading. So every so often, they would remember the covenant that they made. Good? Well, that's a lot, right? Is that a lot? That's a lot. Okay, so that, that's, that's an ancient covenant. This right here is not something that is unique to the Bible. Here's why this is important. It's because so many people, especially today, when they're, they're questioning their faith and all that stuff, and they go to try to disprove the Bible, this is not just, this is why I try to say this, we'll talk about this more Tuesday, this is not just the infallible God-breathed Word of God. You know what I'm saying? As if somebody like Moses or somebody was in a trance, and while he was asleep, the Holy Spirit was going, uh, and then bam, King James Bible. You know what I'm saying? Here we go, leather-bound, you know, no, no, this, this, was it God-breathed? Absolutely. Is it without error? Absolutely. As long as you're reading it the way it's intended to be read. <laughs> is it without error according to the way the certain denominations read it? No. It has error in that way. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but that's all. that has nothing to do with the Bible. It has everything to do with mine. But this document that we have, which is exactly what it is, this is the Bible, is not just something that is just this far-fetched thing that happened to find its way here. This, this is historical. This stuff actually happened. And we have proof, even proof, from around places that didn't even worship God that this is something that would have been involved in the thinking of Israel. I mean, this is big. This is huge. You know what I'm saying? And so I, the re, that's the reason I wanted to lay this groundwork, is I didn't want to just come in and talk to you about covenant. I wanted to come in and also talk about the fact that you can trust what you're reading because it's not only from God, but it is historically true. Amen. Okay, so this is what the covenant at Sinai, just to give you an example, look like. You ready? I'm not going to read this. I'm ultimately going to Matthew 26. But this is what the covenant at Sinai looked like. Number one, this is Exodus 20, verse 2 and Deuteronomy 5. I am the Lord your God. If you open the Ten Commandments, that's what it starts with. I am the Lord your God. Okay? Number two. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Historical prologue. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here's the stipulations, which is the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods except me. And then he goes on to list the other ones. Stipulations. Blessings and curses I'll get to in a second because it, it separates them out, but they're all here. You shall have no other gods before me. Stipulations or obligations. Um, deposit. Where the, where the covenant will be deposited. This is what it says. Moses put the tablets of the covenant in the Ark of the Covenant, the place where Yahweh was enthroned. In the temple of Yahweh where he was enthroned. Okay? This in Exodus 25, 21, Exodus 40, and Deuteronomy 10. Here's the periodic reading. At the end of every seven years, the Israelites are called to appear before God and the law be read before all of Israel. That's Deuteronomy 30. Periodic reading. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 4, 30 and 31. I call on heaven and earth 
to witness against you today. Witnesses, last one. And he gives in Deuteronomy 27, verse 11, all the way through Deuteronomy 28, verse 68, he gives curses and blessings for not following or following the law. Okay? So the list I wrote out before came strictly from Hittite covenants around 2000 to 1000 BC that did not follow the Lord. Okay? What I just read you came directly from Scripture, and it follows the exact same structure, which shows us a couple of things. Number one, that God is a God of grace. We all knew that, if you need any more proof. But number two, that like I said before, this is something that is trustworthy. This is something that is speaking to us in a much deeper way than you and I ever thought. Because what did I say in the beginning? The purpose of a covenant in the Hittite times, in the Assyrian times, and then as we see in Israel's time, the purpose of a covenant was to do what? Bring you into the family. Yahweh gives Israel, and ultimately you and I, a covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. Old Testament, new testament. Gives us a covenant in order to teach us something much deeper than what you and I ever believed. You and I thought that God gave us the Ten Commandments because if we don't keep those, we die. If we keep them, we live. And that was not the purpose of the commandments, and it wasn't even the purpose of the law. The purpose of the commandments and the law ultimately was to say, you're in my family. And because you're in my family and in covenant, there are some things, some responsibilities that are on you, not to say, I kill you if you don't do these, but to say, because you're in the family, you've got to act like you're in the family. Like, okay, if I'm going to bring you into my family, and I'm going to, as the, as the patriarch, God is the patriarch of the family, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to give you shelter, I'm going to give you food, I'm going to give you crops, I'm going to give you animals, I'm going to give you brides, I'm going to give you all this stuff that you need. If I'm going to bring you into the family, then when it comes time for you to eat the harvest of the stuff that I have given you, you need to go out in the field and get the harvest. Or when it comes time for you to have the kids that I have blessed you with, you need to take care of your kids. Or kids, when it comes time for you to be at a place where you know what you're doing, you need to honor your father and mother so that your days will be long on the earth. Or if I'm going to bring you into the house, you're not going to have any other gods before me. What is he saying? He's saying, I am your patriarch. You are not to go to any other patriarch for your provision except me. Do you see this? Much to, so by, by God giving Israel and then later on us, by him giving us a covenant, it is not stipulations in order to get into covenant. Him giving us the covenant is the decree that you're already in the family. You don't get a covenant unless you're in the family first. Right? So if two countries are coming together, they get the covenant because they're coming together. They don't get a covenant and say, in 10 years, we're going to see how good you've kept that side and you've kept that side. And if everybody's kept it good, then we'll join together. No. 
They say, we're joined together, therefore this is what the family looks like. Everybody good? Anybody have any questions? Okay. Once a covenant was made, all that remained was to do an oath and a ratification. A ratification is simply consent, like, yes, I will do this. I will be a part of this. Let me read this to you. You, you ready to see some amazing stuff? Okay, I am. Um, good Lord. Um, Exodus 20, verse 3. Let me, let, me just, let me just read this to you. Starting at verse 3. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Okay? Remember, all that was left was an oath and a ratification. We will do this, and then we're going to do an act to show, and I'll show this to you, a sacrifice to show that we are going to do this. When Moses went and told the people the Lord's words and the laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. There's your oath. Verse 4. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord said. He got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered, listen, they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Listen to this, listen. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Verse 8, then Moses, you ready for this? Then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on all of the people and said, you ready? This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the blood of the covenant that gets sprinkled on everyone. Does that sound familiar? Okay. So, you have the oath, which is Exodus 24.3. We'll do all that the Lord said. And then you have the ratification, which is right after. It's a ratification ceremony. And they sacrifice bulls. He puts blood in the bowl, spreads it on the altar. He takes the other half of the blood and puts it on all the people. He sprinkles the blood on everyone. That would bring up a couple of things. Number one, it would bring up the exodus when the blood of the lamb is sprinkled on the doorpost and death passes over them. And number two, it would point to something they had not seen yet. Let me read this to you. This is going to be good. You ready? Here we go. Matthew 26. I told you to turn there. 27 and 28. Listen to this. Uh, let, let, me, let me back up. Let me give you some context. Verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took, this is the Last Supper, took the bread um, and had, after he, when he had given thanks, excuse me, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Listen. 
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When does the Last Supper take place? Anybody know? Do you know, Matt? Passover. The, listen, the Last Supper is taking place at Passover. When Moses has the blood and sprinkles it on the people, what did I tell you it would remind them of? The Passover. When death passed over. Jesus takes this bowl, this cup, which represents his blood. Who is Jesus? The spotless lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. He takes the blood and Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant immediately every single person at the table would have hit them like a ton of bricks. Exactly what Jesus was saying. This is what, <laughs> this is what Moses said. I'm, I'm, you know. Here's what Moses said. <clears throat> he took the blood, sprinkled it on all the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant. He took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. Immediately, all the disciples would have known exactly what Jesus was saying, that this is another Passover. And the blood of the Lamb of God would cause death to pass over the human race. And it is this Lamb's blood that ratifies a new covenant with the people of God, as Moses sprinkled the blood of the first covenant on all of Israel, so Jesus would distribute his blood or communion to all people. This blood wasn't just a bull or a goat, it was God himself. And we aren't just delivered from Egypt, we're delivered from death itself. And we're in the new covenant. Listen, I, the Lord showed me this this week. This is a verse I've wrestled with for years, and I've taught as I've wrestled with it for years. When Jesus says, I have not come to do away with the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. I've not come to do away with them, I've come to fulfill them. Well, the reason I've wrestled with that is because it seems to me like through Jesus' death, he does away with the law and the prophets. Jesus, I didn't come to throw it away, I came to fulfill it. Here's the problem. If something is fulfilled, doesn't that mean it's over? Like if you said, I'm going to give you a loan of $1,000. When you pay back $1,500, the loan is forgiven, right? So if I fulfill that covenant and give you $1,500, then now the stipulations are done. It's over. So when Jesus says, I haven't come to do away with it, but I have come to fulfill it, I've always wondered... Well, by fulfilling it, don't you do away with it? Because I always saw the covenant as something you have to do in order to get in the family. But the covenant is an announcement that you're actually in the family. So I haven't come to do away with the announcement. I've come to fulfill it. What is he saying? You remember in Genesis 15, when... Abraham falls asleep. I've taught this every week, just about. Abraham falls asleep. He wakes up. He sees the smoke. 
and the fire coming across the blood path. You remember this, right? And God is saying, I'm going to be in covenant with you. I'm going to take both sides on myself. So if you fail your side of the covenant, it's going to be on me to fix it, not you. I have not come to do away with this. I have come to fulfill it. What is he saying? He's saying, I didn't come to throw away the announcement you're in the family. I came to fulfill Abraham's side of it that I told him in Genesis 15 I would. So I'm not throwing anything away. I have come, and this is why the other translation is this. I have not come to do away with the law and the prophets. I've come to fill them to the brim is the other translation. And he brings us into a new covenant. But in Greek, there's two words for new. There's naos, which is new in age, and then there's kainos, which is restored. He doesn't come to bring us into a brand new covenant to throw away the other announcement. He comes to bring us into what this was always intended to be. Remember what I taught last week. Everything in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Christ. Therefore, God met Israel in something they understood covenant, to communicate his desire to help them see that they are in the family with family resources and with family responsibilities. He sealed that covenant with blood as a signpost to the blood that would be spilled as a seal of a better version of covenant to set Adam's kids free from the bondage of sin and death forever. Let me read this in Hebrews 10. If you have your finger there, follow along. If not, you can just listen. Verse 1. The law is a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never be, excuse me, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would not have stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What ratified the covenant in Exodus? The blood of what? Bulls. Therefore, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Verse 8. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifice which can never take away sins, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Man, something just hit me that I didn't see before. 
The covenant, when it was deposited in the temple, was put in the Ark of the Covenant, which was, the Old Testament says, the footstool of God. He sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. What is he saying? Is he saying he's going to crush his enemies with his feet, or is he saying even his enemies are going to be brought? Okay, okay, okay. Verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I just made a statement y'all y'all don't y'all don't even think about. <clears throat> That's you I got oh, let me just stop. That's really huge. The covenant was deposited in the footstool, the ark of the covenant of Yahweh. Jesus dies the one sacrifice for all time for all sins. The one time for all sins. He sits down at the right hand of God and now waits for his enemies to be made his Ark of the Covenant. Let me just make a statement. Covenant is redemption. The old covenant was made with Israel. The new covenant is made with humanity. Jew and Gentile. Not one kid will be left lost by God. He will search and search and search and search until he finds. Well, brother, that sounds like universal. No, it's not. No, it's not. But that's the, go the gospel is that he seeks, this is Luke 15, until he finds. So we've got to reconcile whatever we believe about the lost with the idea that is scriptural, that's God-breathed and infallible, brother, in the King James, we've got to reconcile our beliefs about what happens to the lost with the idea of what Scripture says, which is, he seeks until he finds that which was lost. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. My email is jenna at dreamcolumbia.com. <laughs> Huh? But, okay, see, but in the church, see, in the Eastern church, here's what they do. Man, that's a new idea, but let's, let's talk about that. I mean, in the Western church, here's what, what we do. Heretic. 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 If I'm a heretic, so is Jesus. All right, verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord... I will put, listen, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Period. We, we have made the gospel a covenant which is not historical. And what we've really made it is a list of rules that says, if you do this, you will get in. And that is not what a covenant is. 
I, with my wife, made a covenant with her, and we made that covenant on day one of our marriage, not day 1,000. I didn't wait and see how she was going to be a wife before I said yes to covenant with her. I said yes to covenant with her, which made her my wife. We have seen the gospel like this. Here we go. I feel the strength of Goliath. Or not Goliath, Lord Gideon. Um, maybe Goliath too, pretty strong. This is how we've seen the gospel. We've seen the covenant here, right? And then we see acceptance here. And this span right here, let's just call it what it is, is works. How well you keep this covenant will determine whether or not you're accepted. When do we believe you're accepted? Typically when you die. And you'll find out when you walk up to St. Peter at the gates. Like St. Peter ain't got something better to do than sit around in a bunch of gates all day. You know what I mean? Like walk up to St. Peter and you'll say, this is what I did. I did this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And he'll say, welcome home, brother. You know, welcome home, welcome home. I've, one of these days I'm going to stand face to face with the Lord. and He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, brother. Just to make fun of me. So anyway, um, this, this, is how, this is how we've seen the gospel. This is the gospel. That's the gospel. Is you're accepted and a fruit of your acceptance is a covenant. And a fruit of your covenant is life. And that's it. That's it. And we make it so much more complicated. And so we say, in order for you to be in the church, you've got to do this and this and this and this and this because that's the way we can keep people under our foot, make them do what we want them to do. And I'm here to tell you something that's real dangerous for me because I'm setting you free from any of my authority that would cause you to stay in slavery to me. You know what I mean? Because I could teach you, I could teach you today that your salvation is dependent on what you do in the church and make every one of y'all serve me. Right? Let's just call it what it is because that's typically what happens. Right? That's why the pastor's driving in a Bentley and everybody else driving in a Pinto. But, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. So, you know, but that, so this is what we made. We've made the gospel covenant offered. You do something with the covenant and then maybe you're accepted or you're denied. You, if you're in covenant, you are not and cannot be denied by way of your covenant. For you to be denied by God is for God to break his own side of the covenant. Because according to Genesis 15, he is standing on our side and his side holding it together. So it is, man, okay. So it's not, here's covenant, ready? I need a bigger whiteboard. This is covenant. It's not God over here and you over here. And you better hold on, because if not, you can break. Listen, let me, let me help you. You cannot possibly break a covenant that God is on both sides of. Or you're stronger than God. I mean, I'll let you deal with that one. This, this is not, according to Genesis 15, God and God are here, and you and I 
are in the middle of the grip that will never let go. Well, brother, how do you prove this? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. How do you prove the incarnation if you don't see God standing on the human side of the covenant that he made with humanity? Why did Jesus become man? Because God told Abraham, when you inevitably fail at the covenant, I will step in and pay the blood price for your side of the covenant too. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And at age 33, he walks right up a hill with a cross and is beaten by humanity. And his blood is spilled out to fulfill the blood path covenant of Genesis 15 and make sure that there is not one moment of your life that you're ever outside of the covenant with God. And we have made the cross and the blood all about the sins of the people. And if you don't do this and you don't do this, then you won't make it in. No, if you don't do this and you don't do this, you won't have life. But you're in. And that's been the gospel from the beginning. It has never been about what you do to get to heaven. It's always been about how you live in heaven now. Because he will make all things new. The question is what role you're going to play in him making all things new. Are you going to be the one that he has to sit and watch you be made a footstool for his feet? Or are you and I going to be the ones that say, we'll lay down our lives to be a footstool for his feet and live every single day to the full instead of live every single day being chased after? You can be either one. You can live your life burning up the road running from God, or you can live your life in the embrace that will make you never at any point in your life question anything about who you are and what your life is worth. I mean, this is big stuff. This is the stuff that I wish God would not give me. I, I beg the Lord to let me, please just give me a good old hellfire and brimstone sermon. We'll fill this place up. Right? I could teach you how hot hell is, and man, we would, we would feel, this place would be so full, so full. Here's what we're going to preach on next Sunday. Here's what, you know what I mean? Here's what we're going to preach. What's that, what's, you know the play that people used to do, Heaven or Hell? And it was all the people that like drank the, the pretend alcohol, and then they got like tossed into the hell side, and all the people that, you remember that play? What was it, man, what was it called? Does anybody remember what that was called? No, that's, that's, that's um, theology. Um, just kidding, that was a joke. Uh, Brandon just said Dante's Inferno, and I said, no, that's theology. Some of y'all, most of y'all don't get that, but that's okay. Most of y'all's idea of hell comes from Dante, who didn't believe in God. Um, so what I'm trying to prove to you in all of this is a deeper understanding of what we've walked through for the past year and a half. Way deeper understanding, which is not just Jesus died because God loves you. Absolutely. But there is an entire undergirding, and I hate that word, but there's an entire foundation underneath the incarnation God is love that makes this thing have some guts. You know what I'm saying? So when, you're, when, you're, you know, when, when your buddies, when pastor friends of mine are like, how can you teach that stuff? Well, have you ever looked at Hittite historical covenant documents? Huh? Exactly. You know what I'm saying? Like, no. But you know what I mean? But it's like, we, we, can't, we can't just preach a gospel that is biblical and anti-religious cultural. 
we got to know why this gospel is biblical, which is why we teach. We have to know why we're in covenant with God. But I, but I want you to say, the, when you open up your Bible, real easy, you have an old covenant and you have a new covenant. You holding this Bible is you being accepted. Every time, I, even if you read it, even if you don't, every time you open up the Bible, I want you to understand, you are accepted. Period. And then once that happens, you can actually begin to live your life as if you have a life to live. We're going to do a, uh, a time of prayer. And this is how we're going to end this instead of doing worship today. We're just going to have a time of prayer and, uh, and just, just soak in what the Lord is doing. Um, but I specifically felt today like we needed to pray over two types of people, types of mindset, whatever you want to call. And it's those who are still carrying guilt and shame over anything. Anyone carrying guilt and shame, number one. And number two, anyone feeling like they have missed out on what a covenant responsibility is. Here's what I mean. There's a difference in works to earn acceptance in a covenant and fruit from the fact that you've been accepted and in covenant. There's a difference in what you do to earn your way in and what you do because your way in has been earned. Okay? So the reason that I don't steal is not because if I steal, I'm not going to be in covenant with God. The reason I don't steal is because I am in covenant with God. Therefore, I won't steal. Right? This is basic stuff we've been talking about forever. The reason I live different than the people around me is not because that somehow earns me an inside track and to be accepted. The reason I live different than those around me is because I actually believe I have been accepted. And then your life lived will begin to preach something to them that says, if their life can look like that without the fear of punishment, that's what love said, 1 John 4. He says, love does not carry with it the fear of punishment. So when you start to live in a place where you know you've been accepted, it's going to dare other people to get out of the mindset that there is a punishment awaiting me if I don't do X, Y, and Z, and instead believe maybe I've just been accepted. And that doesn't mean anybody can just do whatever they want. That's, that defeats the whole thing of everything I'm saying. There, when you're in covenant, there is a responsibility. And the responsibility is to live like you're actually in covenant. So the, re so the reason we come to church is not because... If you, you know, don't come to church, then, man, you're just, you're going, no. The reason we come to church is because we believe we are accepted and in covenant with a God who created the universe. Therefore, we're going to join ourselves with the family of those who have finally started to see what is real. That's what Karl Barth says. He, this is my favorite quote of his in, in um, his little book on Romans 5. At the very end of it, he says this. He says, the Christians aren't the only ones who have been redeemed. The Christians are the only ones who have realized they've been redeemed. 
Huh? Tell me if you heard that in the church growing up. Right? He says, the Christians are not the only ones, let me change, that Jesus died for. The Christians are the only ones who have realized they have been died for. And I don't even know if that was linguistically right. But you know what I'm saying? That what, huh? So, so you start living your life not to call people into a lifestyle that would make them accepted, but to call people into the realization that they have been accepted. How, how much easier is it to share the gospel? You go to someone, all right, so I got this list of rules that you need to keep. Think of all the, what's the Jehovah's Witness to have the, the thing about Jehovah's Witness, I, I love their enthusiasm. The thing that doesn't make sense to me to this day, they believe 144,000 people will be saved. And there are billions of Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know how that works. But, um, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, 144,000 are going to be saved, and yet there are billions. Um, so which one of the billions are going to be the one for, you know? So, but I got to hand it to them. They're always, they're out there. The old, I'm thinking of the old ladies that stand in the state house. They always got their stand up, um, and they're always, you know, doing their thing. I've gotten at least 20 tracks from them. Um, but anyway, how much easier, though, is it when you begin to share the gospel, and when people walk by you, you don't have to have the megaphone that says, Turn or burn, or if you, you know, live this way, then God hates you, or, you know, whatever. But if you keep this rule and this command, and this, how much easier is the gospel when you say, look at somebody in the eyes, and you tell them, he redeemed you too, and you have been accepted. Therefore, living like this is not your inheritance. Now you're meeting someone at a real place and you're overcoming the lie that they're living in with truth rather than trying to overcome the lie with another lie called religion. And we wonder why people don't want that. Come to my church and we're going to have a burning next Friday night. We'll burn all our contemporary Christian music CDs. It's going to be amazing. You know what I'm saying? And we got pizza. Let me say... Uh, we, we wouldn't have to spend millions of dollars on free giveaways and pizzas if we just preached the right gospel. And as a church that doesn't have millions of dollars to do giveaways in, that's a great sermon. So, um, <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm just, I want to encourage you. When you open your Bible, I just want you to start to dare, and I know we've been saying this for over a year, really for five years, but I want you to start opening up these pages and dare to see a story that is way beyond the surface, that is much deeper than God is mad and you've got to do something to make him happy. God was never mad. He was never mad. In fact, even if he was mad, it was nothing but a sign of his love. I get mad at my daughter sometimes, and when I get mad at her, at no point do I ever question her acceptance. My anger at some of the stuff she does is proof that she's accepted. Anybody got anything you want to throw in before we pray? What, what, what chapter was Jer that Jeremiah? Six. Jeremiah six. Yes. Jeremiah six. Anybody else got anything? Awesome. Let me make sure this mic is still on. There we go. Hey. 
Um, I'm gonna pass this off to you, Isaiah. Um, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna open up in prayer. Matt, anybody else that feels like you want to come up and pray? I know this is so different than what we normally do. Um, we don't have music. We don't have anything like that. We're just literally going to take a few minutes and just pray, okay? Um, sh- shocking. You know what I mean? Like, Lord, God forbid. But, you know, um, some of y'all, y'all better not fall asleep while we pray. No, I'm just kidding. Um, here's the funny Man, I'm gonna get, I'm, he's going to get so mad at this. Um, we were praying. We were, me and Ellington were in here praying one day. And, uh, and so we were praying, and all of a sudden I looked over and I said, Either Ellington's out in the spirit <laughs> or Ellington. And so I, I just, I left it, whatever. And, uh, he, and he said, and I was just resting in the Lord. And I was like, I need to rest in the Lord too. Um, but that was so, oh man, that was so funny, so funny. So he's definitely going to roast me for that one day. But anyway, um, but I, like, I just, I want us to take a few minutes. We're not going to like, I mean, we might, I don't know. I ain't going to give you any promises, but. Um, I just want us to pray. I want us to pray over any guilt or shame that remains in us, okay? Guilt or shame of your past, something you did this morning, you know, something you're going to do next week. Like, guilt, there is no guilt and shame. I want you, every single time you do something that goes against the law or goes against whatever you grew up in church, every single time, I want you to see yourself in the grip of a covenant where God is in both sides. You don't have a grip on the covenant. Thank God. You don't, listen, you don't have a, this is going to be real controversial, you don't have a side of the covenant. You do, but you're not in control of your side. He is. So you're within a covenant that God is on both ends of holding together. So there's there's nothing you could possibly do to break out of that. But there is a lot you could do to live like hell in that. Amen. All right. So let's pray. Lord, I just, I thank you. You've really given us a pattern to pray. So I want to pray that. Lord, I thank you for a gospel that is way greater than anything I ever thought. For a gospel that is much more robust and full and full of life and full of who you are and full of love. So much deeper than anything that we've ever dreamed is the gospel that we have received. We're pioneering a word that the Lord gave Isaiah. We're pioneering a new old way of seeing the ancient path, of finding the ancient way. And as we are finding that, we're finding two things. We're finding that we're on the narrow way that only a few find. And we're also finding the way and the truth and the life that makes its way to the Father. And so, Lord, I believe that what we are discovering right now is because there have been people in every single generation who have made the decision to say if it goes against the grain, if it goes against what the norm is, if it goes against what everybody else around me is doing, I'm still going to stand on the truth that the Spirit has placed within my heart. And because of that, we're here today with a dare to say maybe there's more. Had it not been for those heroes of the faith, had it not been for those fathers and mothers that stood in the gap when there was a very big gap between what was real and what is not, between religion and the kingdom, had it not been for those fathers and mothers that stood in the gap, you and I in this room, we would not be here doing what we're doing with the dare to stand in another gap. But it's because of those who you have given the same win to that we are here today standing there. 
calling out to the culture as watchmen, saying, Find the ancient road, and you have provided along the way. You have blessed this church. Matt prayed this this morning, but I mean, you've get, we've had uh, over, almost a quarter of a million dollars. A quarter of a million dollars given to this church since we started. For most churches, that's a six-month budget. For us, with 30 people, it's a miracle. But that's what you've done. You have delivered us from Egypt. You've delivered us from insecurities and slavery and mindsets. You have found us. And because of that, the days that, that lie ahead of us are, are I, there are no words for what we're going to experience. Let me say like this. There are no words for what we're currently experiencing. And if we'll have eyes to see it, we're tasting right now everything that we've been saying is coming in the future. Now that's here. New wine is here. New wine is stretching us. It's molding us. It's maturing us. And the fact that we're able to contain it and stretch with it is a, is a sign that you and I have gone through the process of new wine skin. And so, Lord, we ask for more. I pray against every idea of guilt, every idea of shame. I pray against every idea of apathy. See, if this is a covenant where you just have to do enough to get through to acceptance, then you can live apathetically toward it. But if it's a covenant that identifies you as a bride, as in the family, then there are responsibilities that you get to be a part of and enjoy because you're in the family. And apathy is not one of them. So I speak against every idea of apathy in our people, against the, peop the, the idea of apathy in the church right now. And Lord, I call sons and daughters home. I call sons and daughters who have been running for their lives to come home right now in Jesus' name.